Ladies and gentlemen, once again, I have to do it. I have to put you on. You guys need to listen to Little Sims. I'm serious. You need to stop playing with me. Okay? She won the Mercury Pies last night for her album last year. Simbi, sometimes might be introvert. Please, I beg you. In the words, Public Enemy's Chuck D, bring the noise. Podcast Network. I'm Charlie Taylor, and this is what's good. Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen. Hope you've all had a good week in the circumstances. See, I ask that question every week now. Uh, well, have been since probably day one. <laughs> I know. I know. I put in the circumstances after COVID. I know for sure, but I know my intro stayed mostly the same. All right, and. You know, I try and either go on a tangent that is just on my mind at the time of recording, such as the intro I just did of actually, I listed I watched the work Mercury Prize last night and I actually really enjoyed the overall list. Um, you know, I only heard of about half of them. Uh well, yeah, more than half I heard of them and um, you know, half of those I didn't even I don't even listen to like that. I, I don't listen to Harry Styles. I don't listen to Sam Fender. Um, and, and you know, apart from Joy Crooks, Koji Radical, and Lil Sims, you know, that's kind of that's kind of why I enjoy listening to watching the Mercury Prize and just seeing how they go about just the overall list itself, the short list. Um, you know, they they didn't even I I don't even know if like uh, Dave, you know, got his. Uh, like he, I don't know if he submitted his album. Uh, we'll line this together, but he could have, right? And that didn't come in the shortlist, even though he won for psychodrama, right? So it's interesting how you know, most of the time, I feel they get it pretty, quote unquote, right. Um, and it's in, and it's in this style where it's the only award show, musically anyway. I, I'll stick it to music where. I actually just respect the picks. I may not respect the dub, whoever gets the dub, because you know that 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 comes into more subjective circles. But um, and because of that, <coughs> you get you you know even this year, right? <coughs> Had some like um Scottish jazz guy Fergus McCready, I think his name was. Um, fucking Jessie Buckley, the actress, um, who I last saw in Fargo, um, season four. She was fucking sick in that in that in that series. Um and uh you know and she she got pipes like, I was just hearing her live with um Bernard I forgot his name Bernard Saint of her uh, suede fame and she fucking killed it I was just like oh she got pipes and it was Irish a bit of like Irish folk kind of thing going on it was lit it was kind of sick I actually listened to the album today as I was walking dog it's really good it's actually really enjoyable um let me give you a recommendation let me just let me just get it out right right quick since I'm saying it uh Jackie Buckley and Bernard Butler for all our days that tear the heart so yeah you know stuff like that right and um yeah you know there's just some really good stuff there it's really eclectic and there's nothing like it and I really respect that um you know having this I, I've heard of the Nova Twins and I haven't spun the Nova Twins but I have spun the Nova Twins now as I, as I say that 
Um, I, I, spun, I spun a bit of their work um, again, my walk in the dog. Bit of a vibe change, of course. I, I spun it back to back with the Jesse Buckley record, but you know, it's interesting. I don't listen to that kind of stuff regularly, um, but you know, I kind of trust if if any award show deserves my um, trusted judgment, then I I give it to the Mercury Prize. Honestly, it's in, it's kind of it's the only award show I fuck with. Honestly, you know, objectively, um, you know, uh, but, you know, I, I could say the Baftas, but yeah, I don't know, I don't know, I don't, I don't uh, when it comes to TV and film, I don't know. I just I just never. I feel I feel like I'm 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 leaning out of that. Not like you know career wise, but I'm leaning out of that just in terms of um, I don't know what people's tastes are. There's so much going. There's so much TV about. There's so much films about, and all the films I hear about are always fucking blockbusters. I mean, the reviews of Black Adam just dropped recently. I'm just like that's all I see now, um, and apparently that's a uh, pretty mid. Um, but yeah, I forgot what my overall point was. I was going to say something other than the Mercury Prize, but um, anyway, fuck it. <laughs> Is what it is. Uh, let's get into the show. All right, so we have uh, music, society, life, and the sports uh, segments for this episode. Uh, four ways before we begin. Email to the Discord link. All that, all that, all that. In the full show notes, please go pick the article for yourself. Give them a read for yourself and support the writers to make the show possible. And with that said, let the beat drop. And let's get into the show. In a week where Kwasi Kwarteng resigns, quote-unquote, resigns as Chancellor, and uh, actually, as I as I record, just in past, like, hour or two, uh, Suella Braverman has, quote-unquote, resigned as a Home Secretary, uh, which is just absolutely outstanding. Could just come at the, come at the tofu-eating wokarati, and you best not miss. Like, just, it's, it's fucking great. Imagine, imagine putting yourself out there as the woman that dreams, literally, she literally said she dreams of deporting people to Rwanda. What a fucking demonic statement to have on your record. And you didn't even get the opportunity to do it. Fucking peak. Unbelievable. Uh, anyway, continue on. Actor Robbie Coltrane dies age 72 of obviously Hagra fame. Uh, Man United's Grayson Greenwood is uh, is charged with attempted rape, engaging and controlling a coercive behaviour and assault occasioning ABH. So that's a lot. Uh, Caressa Shields beats uh, Savannah Marshall in the biggest women's boxing night ever. And lastly, happy but 100th birthday to the BBC, uh, which... Um, I think I feel, I feel like the BBC is like along with the NHS is very fascinating, right? Where it's just like these public, you know, staples of of British life, and they're both being gutted right now, um, in if, if quite factually by the Tory government, um, and I don't know, it just feels weird just saying happy hundred hundred birthday to the BBC, but the BBC is a hundred years old. That's crazy to think about. People don't even think of the BBC like that um, as a hundred-year-old institution. They, they they probably get it in the fifties or sixties when you know they got TVs, but it's been around for a hundred years, and we're just gonna kill it off in t- within ten years like that. It's just crazy how life works. So eh? anyway, let's jump in right 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 into pretty much the <laughs> great uh, segue to the subject of societal collapse. 
little bit, a little bit. It's, it's, it's close, it's close. It's, we got there. Um, we can we can make the jump. <clears throat> so this is a, a written by Nafiz Ahmed uh, via Byline Times. It's called Britain is sleepwalking into societal collapse. Societal collapse. Um, and obviously this is uh, more pertaining to you know politics, but um, you know politics it affects everything. I believe anyway. Let's jump over. I spent two decades studying the dynamics of social crisis and societal collapse. It's now clear to me that Prime Minister Liz Truss is leading Britain into a convergence of crises that is likely to culminate in an unprecedented social and economic collapse that cascades across the government, economy, housing markets, energy, health, the judiciary and beyond. Worse, these crises uh, risk triggering a global financial crisis bigger in scale than the 2008 crash, one that, like that crash, could have potentially irreversible impacts on global civilization. The second of Qua- Chancellor Kwasi Kwarteng, no, 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 he resigned. <laughs> okay. After <laughs> 30 days in office, correction uh, is unlikely to significantly reverse these prospects. In fact, it signals a systemic level of incoherence, the only outcome of which at this stage can be continued breakdown. The danger is that as this government collapses, it brings the rest of Britain down with it. Systems collapse when they are unable to adapt to change. The policies of the trust government are not only accelerating conditions of change beyond the capability of British institutions to adapt, they are generating crises across multiple institutions simultaneously in such a way that they are overwhelming the overall system's ability to respond. When a system is overwhelmed in this way, we start to rapidly run out of options within the existing framework. Uh, the more it moves in different directions to quell the crisis, the more it inadvertently stokes the crisis. As a result, the system itself becomes an accelerator of its own collapse. And this is exactly the predicament that the trust team has managed to pull Britain into. These ingredients are critical preconditions for the collapse of complex societies. Such collapses have taken place over decades, in some cases centuries in others. While collapse doesn't necessarily necessarily entail the complete evisceration of a society, it involves a breakdown of institutional complexity. This results in a loss of societal capabilities, potentially entailing redu- uh, reductions in living standards and population. This trust's agenda is accelerating the risk of such a collapse in a way that is unprecedented, while to some extent this can be explained by a pension for disaster capitalism designed to benefit elites at everyone's expense. The deeper problem is that the trust government appears to be fundamentally incapable of grappling with complexity. It doesn't realise that our systems are tightly coupled in complex ways, that these interconnections mean you cannot tinker with one element of the system without upending the entire system, that pulling the rug out from under critical institutions or public services can unravel social cohesion in a way that could generate chronic instability from which there is no easy recovery, leading to a spiral of escalating costs and diminishing returns. Britain is on the brink of spiralling out of control. Perhaps the most alarming of all is the risk of global financial collapse. A trust government has failed to recognise that its actions are accelerating the risk of such a collapse. The knock-on effects of which would feed back into the British economy and crush all hopes of economic growth. The belated U-turns are a little, are too little, too late. Nice reference to uh, the Hardy Matharu uh, <laughs> uh, article I read a few weeks ago. According to Nigel Green, CEO of the Devere Group, uh, one of the world's leading independent uh, financial advisory firms, 
The quote-unquote fallout from the UK government's failure to ensure stability quote could spread into impact could spread to impact the wider global financial markets, which themselves are sitting on incredibly thin ice as liquidity disappears. Unquote. He told Byline Times that a lack of credible long-term commitment from both the UK government and the Bank of England to calming markets quote has already blown up the UK bond market, mortgage market, UK pensions, amongst others. Unquote. The International Monetary Fund has already predicted a slowdown in global growth, which will feel like a recession for millions around the world by 2023. Another quote, the crisis in the UK in uh, the world's sixth largest economy and with the reserve currency could be a catalyst to accelerate or deepen economic uh, global economic woes, said Green. Fear is contagious. Increased bond turbulence in the UK is triggered by fund liquidations, fuels a sell-off of the pound amid heightened stability, which in turn drives UK stock outflows, which prompts similar sell-offs across international markets. Considering the close crossovers of regions when it comes to macro issues such as soaring inflation, sowing growth and tightening monetary policy, markets often extrapolate, especially where there is political change in places such as Italy, for example. It's clear that the Bank of England have a foot on the brake and the trust on the accelerator, unfortunately, this could result in a crash potentially damaging others as it rolls, unquote. In this way, the tug of war between trusts and central banks should, shouldn't be seen as a scuffle isolated to the British Isles. It could have ripple effects across the global financial system. Private and public debt as a share of global GDP is now at record levels, approaching $300 trillion. It has risen from 200% in 1999 to 350% today. The United Nations Conference on Trade and Development is already forecasting that rapid interest rates increases and fiscal tightening is, quote, pushing the world towards global recession and prolonged stagflation, inflicting worse damage than the financial crisis in 2008 and the COVID-19 shock in 2020, unquote. The escalating incoherence of the government's economic, financial and monetary policies is intensifying this trajectory. And since the 2008 financial crash, the world has largely run out of road for dealing with such a crisis. After 12 years of quantitative easing, I hate, I hate that word, I hate saying that word, quantitative, it's just too many, quantitative, uh, easing to ease a crisis, the room to for further borrowing without escalating risk is greatly diminished. God, God damn, it's, it's actually crazy how like he's broken it down from the economy, which he just did, the housing market, energy, <laughs> critical services, fuck it up. This, this, honestly... I probably should have done this for a long read, but I'm in it now. I might as well continue. Uh, we're about halfway there. Uh, well, more than halfway. Uh, this can clearly be seen uh, in the knock-on effects of the housing market, which interest rates spiking to help deal with inflation. Mortgage rates are soaring. Uh, this, in turn, will lead house prices to fall. Both of these factors will dramatically increase the threat that consumers default on their mortgages. If house prices fall below the value of the mortgage, even while mortgage repayments become affordable, this negative equity could result in more people pushed out of the housing market, further reducing housing demand, prices and confidence. The result would be a deepening economic contraction that increases the severity of a recession. At worst, a collapse in housing markets could trigger further debt defaults across the consumer sector, culminating in a wider debt crisis. Is a lot of this going over your head? I, I, I have a feeling it probably is and I, <laughs> I don't have time to explain. Um, but I mean, this is a lot of uh, obviously just a uh, very weedsy, uh, weedsy talk, uh, which um, you know, I think is worth it. 
Uh, that too would compound in the decline in confidence and potentially trigger further crises across the financial system, not just in the UK, but potentially across the world. The trust economic agenda has now made the prospect of a housing market collapse that sparks wider contagion much more probable. But at this point, the economic toolbox is empty. The market is demanding extreme austerity to balance public finances, which would escalate the cost of living crisis and drive tens of millions of people into poverty. Yet, if, pe- if public spending is maintained, the markets will remain in turmoil. In other words, whichever the direction the economy now moves, moves in will result in crisis. I think the overall point I'm getting across all this, right, is that the Conservatives are very selfish at this point to not make a general election right now. Um, I mean, immediately, because or or just ask for help because clearly they need help. They don't have people that are that are fit. They they just don't have people that are fit. And the fact that they're just ringing, kind of, you know, pacing with their thumb up their ass, trying to figure out how to either get trust out of government but keep power and stuff like that. All this trying to keep power is just delaying, kind of the inevitable in some ways. And when you want. Labour to uh, gather. I'm, not, I'm, just, I'm, just, I'm kind of kidding <laughs> on that front, but honestly, I'm not kidding when it comes to just have a general election, man. Like, because you're you're affecting not just the UK at this point. You're gonna affect the entire global market with your hubris, with your bullshit, with your I believe this, I believe that. Fuck your beliefs, people. Professionals are telling you shit. Fucking go with it, please. I like, stop fucking winging it. I'll stop taking the car where the fuck you want. We're all gonna fucking crash, okay? And it's your fault. Uh, it's 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 absurd at this point. Twelve years, twelve years of a slow death, and you're still clinging to power. You don't have any anymore. You don't have a mandate anymore. Call a general election anyway. Let's get let's continue on. The government's response to the energy crisis is compounding these economic and financial risks. The crisis is being driven by a fundamental dependence on fossil fuels, but instead of moving to rapidly end this dependence, the trust strategy has been to cement it. The problem is, is that this approach ties the UK to the most expensive sources of energy, which are rapidly declining in quality. The trust government's decision to focus on ramping up North Sea oil production and fracking make no economic sense, because their costs of production are increasing even as their actual production levels are declining. Meanwhile, the government is trying to de- destroy renewable energy growth with windfall taxes on solar and wind companies, but not for fossil fuel polluters, uh, while also pursuing legislation to block solar installations in farmland, despite the fact that solar and wind are now nine times cheaper than gas. <sighs> See, it's, fact, it's, it's, it's statistics like that where I'm just like, I know solar and wind are, prob- are just better in every way, but not that. But not that much better. Nine times cheaper, you know. Oh, yeah, fucking yeah. It's just... They're just handcuffed to capitalism and actually being dragged down. It's crazy. The UK's energy strategy is locking the country into dependence on increasingly expensive energy resources that are facing economic obsolescence as early as 2030. As energy is the bedrock of all economic activity, this is the recipe that will guarantee economic decline. This decade is about to be a bloodbath, honestly. I'm just I'm just deep in it right now. We're we're so we're months away from 2023, literally nearly a third of our way into this decade, and it's just constant. It's just it, the bloodbath is just continuing to just just continuing to shank ourselves in the stomach. It's crazy. Uh, in a complex system, we can expect the unexpected. 
Uh, these escalating crises are generating further institutional breakdowns that in turn could lead to consequences that are difficult to anticipate. Due to declining pay, pension arrangements and working conditions as the cost of living uh, crisis have intensified, public service workers across the spectrum are in revolt. A survey by the British Medical Association of more than 7,700 hospital consultants has shown nearly half, 44%, are planning to leave the NHS next year. According, Jesus Christ. According to Dr. Vishal Sharma, chair of the BMA Consultants Committee, the exodus means that, quote, the NHS is in danger of complete collapse. Oh my fucking days. Wow, this is depressing. Wow, I didn't realise it was this bad. This is crazy. Okay. Moving on. Come on, let's go. Let's, let's continue. Let's finish this up. Uh, the transport system is also reeling with bus rail and London underground strikes now a regular feature of British national life. Postal workers are now joining the fray with little prospect of pay rise. Uh, pay rising in line with inflation, there is little prospect of strike action diminishing. Instead, such disruptions are bound to become worse and more, and more frequent and will likely become more widespread than the industrial action seen in the 1970s. Similar challenges are facing the judicial system, cost of living crisis, drove criminal barristers to strike over low pay, although uh, a subpar deal was reached. The profession is still in massive decline with fewer and fewer joining and increasing numbers leaving uh, for better jobs elsewhere. The strikes have massively compounded bottlenecks piling up in the criminal justice system, creating a backlog of cases stretching over years and no clear solution to catching up with them. As the backlog gets bigger, the expected decline in the profession could grind the system to a halt if key reforms are not pursued, which is partly why in September the Law Society warned that the criminal justice system was on the brink of collapse without funding all parts of it equally. Wow, this is this is this is this is the most potent article I've read in a while. Like I'm I'm potent by by potent I just mean wow, this is just stark. Like th just everywhere is just so close to just fucking bottling. And I knew the NHS was gonna bottle, I knew the BBC was gonna bottle, you know, but I I, I didn't know criminal justice backlog <laughs> is gonna bottle, you know what I mean? Just uh, yeah, yeah, fuck. Alright. Uh, Energy's going to evolve, fuck. As the cost of running the system uh, escalates, returns are diminishing, every response to these crises only creates greater costs and complexity and a new layer of problems. This in turn requires further responses involving more costs and complexity. This cycle increasingly reduces the capacity of the system to respond, accelerating its trajectory towards collapse. At this point, the chances of averting collapse become smaller and smaller because if the crises are simply ignored, the system collapses anyway. The trust government has locked itself into this vicious cycle and is increasingly out of control. The second of Chancellor is a symptom of this escalating incoherence, not a sign that it's changing course to become more coherent. Many of these crises were bound to happen one way or another at some point. Twelve years of austerity involving constant cuts to public services laid the groundwork. Thank you, thank you. See, uh, see, what exactly what I said a few minutes ago. Just put much more succinctly. Twelve years of this shit. Uh, the, what do you expect? Uh, Seeds were planted so long ago. The global energy crisis escalated by Russia's invasion of Ukraine accelerated the impact of austerity and brought forward these crises. Yet the trust government, driven by an unwavering belief in a narrow economic ideology, as put in lightly, which I have argued amounts to a social Darwinistic distortion of neoliberalism, fascinating line, um, has thrown petrol under the flames without realising that its approach is at risk of burning everything to the ground. Oh, just just the term "burning things to the ground" is it, it, it lit it lit my anarchist fire in my belly just 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 right there, but I have to get out of that anyway. Last few paragraphs. Here we go. 
Amid all this, the growing incoherence inside the government replete with U-turns in fighting and destroying a cabinet uh, that is losing the support of his own parliamentary party just demonstrates the scale of the political crisis. The government is imploding and this is further diminishing its decision-making capacity to respond to coherently surmounting internal and external crises. Over the coming months, we are going to witness an acceleration of interconnected political, social and economic crises which strike at the heart of Britain's social fabric and strain critical institutions and services, energy, transport, housing, food, health, criminal justice, policing and beyond. Uh, the government has created a national emergency with devastating consequences that will be long-lasting and it must be recognised that, that this perfect storm was avoidable and that it can be fixed, not within the constraints of our current system. Because it is now clear that the Trust government is incapable of doing anything other than stoking the flames of crisis, the collapse of British conservatism is well underway. Boop, 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 boop. That's the only positive I'm getting out of this. But the next Labour government is going to hear a bigger and more in intractable crisis than the 2008 crash. A comprehensive, a comprehensive crash, uh, a comprehensive crisis, sorry, uh, 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 in which every sector of British society experiences a breakdown with a destructive impact on the lives of citizens. This is why it is a form of social collapse, societal collapse. If Labour is going to successfully lead the country through this unprecedented crisis, it will need to be fully focused on system transformation, ready to think, see and plan holistically, and armed with the capability to recognise and respond to complexity. If it fails to do so, this could herald an even deeper political crisis. Oh my gosh, it's nearly been half an hour of me talking. Um, <laughs> Jesus Christ. Uh, I, I can't say too much past that honestly that is actually crazy. i i i knew all of these things but just having all of that just packed into one article just really blew my mind um so yeah wow one of the most potent articles this year that's for sure um and yeah man shit again call a general election please just can we just get that out of the way because all of this wheel spinning is really, really hurting my brain. That's that's all I have to say past that, because... I mean, <laughs> shit, man. Nafiz <laughs> uh, Ahmed, fucking big ups to you, man. Jesus Christ. Okay, I feel like I've made a real just um, doo doo of just uh, of, a <laughs> of a segment uh, segment structure because I I feel I feel I feel like it's just trivial to <laughs> to, <laughs> to go from societal collapse <laughs> to fucking Battersea Power Station. <laughs> oh gosh! Oh, all right. Oh, sorry. That's that's a that's a that's a doo doo by me, that's a, that's a poo poo by me. Um, but I I do find this I do find this fascinating with all of us do. Um, I don't know why, Battersea, the concept of Battersea Power Station just fascinates the fuck out of me. Like I'm I I wrote a feature one of my my first feature script actually it's a middle story. Um, I for some reason based like the final few well, well like some like the 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 climactic scene. Um, to not give him much away, based in Battersea Power Station. Um, I don't know why, but I just I just thought it'd be a very good place, and it has this very uh, and obviously the the structure of it is super. Just I don't know. It's got this industrial look, right, with the with the chimneys. But uh, I, don't, I don't know. I just love the look of it. It's really fascinating. But 
Bassy Power Station is back um, in uh, after a decade's uh, quote-unquote rejuvenation, refurbishment, whatever you want to call it. Um, and now it's basically just a block of flats and uh, shops. And yeah, it's, basically, it's basically like half Westfield, half uh, block of flats. That's all it is. But um, yeah, I found this um, interesting article about it um, by Dayan Sujik uh, called uh, Find the New Statesman, how uh, Battersea Power Station became a palace of consumerism. So let's go from societal collapse and lower it down to something more soft, consumerism. <laughs> Jesus Christ. This is probably the biggest fuck up I've had like, structurally. I should have done the societal collapse probably last. But anyway, we're here. Let's continue. Battersea Power Station is as monumental an expression of Oh, fucking hell. Anthrop- Anthropocene age as you can find. The sombre brown brick cliff stands back from the Thames with a giant Doric column sprouting from each corner. A powerful reminder of London's smog-darkened past when the world burned whole mountains of coal day in, day out, oblivious to the consequences. Today, but densely packed block flats which sell for at least 3.25 million pounds. Are you fucking crazy? That's horrible. That is crazy. <sighs> For a three-bedroom apartment. <laughs> That's such a weird number of bedrooms. Three bedrooms. That's really weird. Like, two bedrooms, I get. Or like, three. Uh, like, like what new fa- What new family's going to come through there? You know what I mean? What, 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 I, I don't get it. What, what's a... What's a family of four going to be... Going to be fucking about in Battersea Power Station for? Like, I don't know. In, in the middle of London. Literally the middle of London. Um, I just don't see that. Anyway, crowd around the newly restored power station. These can uh, also be understood as having a symbolic significance. The result of a planning system that subcontracts the cost of affordable housing provision to private developers. uh, Battersea Power Station is what might be called an accidental masterpiece. The architect Giles Gilbert Scott, uh, perhaps known uh, now best known for Britain's iconic red telephone boxes, was called in to give an aesthetic quality to the bluntness of the power station's ruthlessly utilitarian stru- uh, architecture, often described as a huge upturned kitchen table after only uh, only after construction work had already started in tw- 1929. For the first, year, uh, few, first years of its life, it had just two chimneys. After the second half of the building was completed, it had three for a long period, reaching its final symmetrical form only after 1955. Shortly before its genera- uh, generators were switched off for the last time in 1983, the con- uh, conservationist campaigning to save it from bulldozers that had already flattened so many Art Deco buildings celebrated it as a colossus of Battersea. Uh, this, the very fact that it still stands in the middle of an area of London that has endured a paroxysm of change, is what gives this continu- uh, gives it its sig- a continuing significance. Jesus Christ, that was a blah, blah, blah. Other than Moan Mouthful, Scott was awarded every honour the architectural establishment had to offer. He was the president of the Royal Institute of British Art- Architects, won the Royal Gold Medal for Architecture. He was at his busiest in the 1930s and the moment where that modernism uh, seemed at its most radical and most threatening to architectural traditionalists. Scott argued for a cautious middle course, or as the architectural historian Nikolaus uh, Pevsner Pe- 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 uh, said of his work for the new Bodleian Bodleian Library in Oxford what is all these names an approach that was quote neither one thing nor another so centuries basically to put a political spin on it in contrast to his grandfather who designed the exuberant St Pancras station god fucking hell this is in the blood in it Charles Gilbert Scott's work on Salvation Army Training College in South London Cambridge University's library 
has a lugubrious, almost Transylvanian uh, flavour, characterised by high towers of uncertain purpose and dramatic blank walls. Bassey, which is uh, the solemn dignity of a Mayan temple, is more successful and has been listed uh, has been a listed building since 1980. The Colossus of Bassey opens its doors to the public for the first time today, 40th of October, um, as if to ex- uh, exercise the power station's past, signaling its hedonistic, guilt-free new identity as a palace of conspicuous consumption, where you can buy a Polestar electric SUV for 79k, or uh, shop in a Korean supermarket until 9 p.m. The northwest chimney no longer puffs sulfur-laden smoke rings from its long-gone boilers. Instead, passers-by will be able to watch the spectacle of a glass bubble soundlessly materialising from the tip of the chimney. Excuse me. It's one of the rebuilt uh, power station's many sideshows. An intricate lift mechanism has been threaded inside the chimney to emerge 365 feet above the power station floor. It offers a panoramic view of London and, an, and the area below, which has undergone an astonishing transformation in recent years from the fortified and moated cube of the new American embassy at Nine Elms to a cluster of Chinese finance skyscrapers around the south side of Vauxhall Bridge. From here, there, uh, from here, there, from here, there, here, there, everywhere, is also a glimpse of the new apartments built on the roof of the power station. The largest is on the market for 18 mil. So I'm trying to think of this structurally, right? So, so, so there's basically like, you know, a Westfield type thing at the bottom and then a, a block of flats above it like stacked on top of it this is like the super rich version of just like those those places i see those you know small small uh those small flats that are, are built above like a sainsbury's local or a tesco's express this is just like the really fucking rich version i imagine this is imagine you just live above a sephora <laughs> just it don't make sense um, it's only inside uh, you understand the apparently monolithic power station was actually built in, two, built in two stylistically very different stages. The first half was completed in 1935 and has a spectacular art deco switch room designed by Scott's collaborator, collaborator Theo Halliday. Um, it looks out over the turbine hall, which, stripped of its machinery, has the flavour of an Edwardian department store lined with pilasters, is that you say? Um, and is flooded with daylight through the glass roof. Second stage, finished after the war, is more restrained, with rusting gantries that contrast with smooth concrete finishes. Salvaging the ruined remains of the power station and deftly inserting a complex of more than 250 shops with restaurants, food courts, along with offices and apartments, is the work of Wilkinson Eyre. Eyre? Eyre? It is the architecture practice that turned a cluster of historic gasometers into uh, at King's Cross into apartments and converted a redundant steelworks in Rotherham into a science-themed adventure playground. Within the bounds of what, it ha- what was asked, it has done an impressive job at Battersea. In most contemporary shopping malls, architecture is reduced to theatrical scenery. You'll find carefully faked fragments of the past, artificially distressed brick walls and neon signs uh, designed to evoke American diners. Uh, in Battersea, the fragments of the past are mostly real or else accurate reconstructions. If place, in places you see disturbingly genuine ruins, such as the traces of staircases torn from the walls that lie on the entrance from the riverfront, uh, the power station is connected to its uh, new Northern Line tube station by what the developers describe as a high street, an open-air continuation of the mall inside. It's a curving pedestrian route flanked on one side by residential buildings, energetically designed by Frank Gehry, and on, others, and on the other by Norman Foster's hotel, office block, and apartments. They've done their best, but in order to pack in the numbers, they rise up to 15 floors 
and are close enough to re- uh, to each other to uh, to create what feels more like a canyon than a street. The developments were meant to have been finished a long time ago. Uh, John Broom, who bought Battersea Power Station and the 40 acres of land around it for just 1.5 mil, uh, promised it would reopen as a theme park by 1990. Uh, two years after Margaret Thatcher set off a huge fire display, uh, display to celebrate the start of work. In fact, all he did was take the roof off and then run out of money. Since then, the site has been uh, through several d- uh, different owners and countless different schemes and even more architects. The Hong Kong-based Taiwanese-born Huang family bought Battersea from Broom's Bankers uh, for 10.5 mil, selling the site for a decade without building anything. The Huangs finally sold the project to Irish-owned company Treasury Holdings for more than 400 mil. And that's a proposed scheme even wilder than Broom's Dickensian... Uh, I like that word, Dickensian, uh, London theme park involving a thousand foot high glass chimney as part of an eco power generating scheme. Uh, it was likely designed to secure approval for a more conventional mixed use in development. The strategy succeeded, but the com- company went bust before it could be built. Its creditors sold a site uh, onto a Malaysian consortium, which valued it at 1.87 billion. I love how this shit is just, the numbers are just rising and like nobody's actually done anything yet. When the station was moved on again in 2019 uh, to other Malaysian investors, investors including the pension fund. <laughs> oh fucking hell, man! This is this is this is what contributes to the societal collapse, by the way. Assets, okay? People not doing fuck all about anything, right? About whatever the fuck they own, whether it's ha- homes or assets, okay? They're not doing anything with it, and because they don't do anything with it means that nothing uh that no money is being put into the economy because of it right now it's going to do something because shopping consumerism da 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 block of flats da 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 but even with that who's buying those flats rich people so don't make fun, it don't it doesn't help anybody in the in the grand scheme anyway Lycanary wharf which was planned as an enterprise zone that would attract industrial sheds what uh, but turned into a high-rise financial center when the develop okay right developer <laughs> financial center when the developers spotted that the same financial centers on offer for warehouses could also go towards office buildings of course of course more office buildings please more more glass more glass uh, more glass buildings um, New Battersea is a product of unforeseen consequences what was meant to be an enabling uh, development uh, to allow for the restoration of the listed power station has become what amounts to a whole town. As costs have risen, so each developer has gone back to the planners to ask for more cons- uh, ask for ask for consent to put more and more expensive housing on the site. There we go. Battersea has hundreds. This is how they make up the money. Um, uh, for, so Battersea has hundreds of shops and seven hundred and fifty thousand square feet of office space room, uh, room for five thousand people to work, with another seventeen unbuilt acres to go. That means four thousand two hundred homes, which could house more than ten thousand people. <laughs> Yeah, but how much does co- that shit cost him? Anyway, uh, saving the power station after 30 years of ruinous decay has come at serious cost. For the developers, the final bill for the completed project is said to be at more than £9 billion. By one count, the public contribution is close to £1.35 billion in cash and kind. And Treasury committed to £1.1 billion to underwriting the expense of building a new tube line uh, to make Battersea a plausible place for that office space. The public has also lost uh, 1,270 affordable homes. Wandsworth Council gave the developers permission to build a four, to build 4,200 homes on the four-year site. It reduced the proportion of affordable homes required from the initial 35% to 15%, and then just a 9% when it was claimed 
that the costly restoration of Battersea would be unviable otherwise. The Khan called it a wholly unacceptable cut. Well, you did it, bruv. <laughs> you, you, I mean, I don't know if he signed it off, but, you know, either Johnson or Livingston did. Uh, what does the public get for it? Several thousand jobs. 386 affordable homes. <laughs> 386. Uh, the survival of the power station itself. Compared with any shopping malls, it's certainly a more appealing place to spend a Saturday afternoon. But it feels like uh, more like a warning rather than a model of how to plan a city. Yeah, it just sounds like a bit of a bloodbath again. Um, in terms of uh, there goes the running theme. Uh, actually, yeah, it's kind of that's kind of the running theme of this episode. Bloodbaths, yeah, it's in more ways than one. We'll get to the other two. Um, yeah, this is just not how city planning should go in my mind. I just I feel like this is a lot of frivolous just. Uh, money wasting um, for minor, very minuscule gains uh, after the fact. When if it was never even touched, uh, see, this is the thing. I aesthetically, I find Battersea so fascinating. I want to take pictures of Battersea. Honestly, I kind of want to go there and take pictures. But past that, is is it worth it? No, all that shit was not worth it. Can't be nine billion. Are you fucking crazy? For some shops and some expensive ass homes. And one's worth a council giving affordable home uh, space. It, it just don't work for me, man. It just doesn't make sense. Like, help, help me, help me quantify that. It just doesn't. The, the the calculation doesn't calculate. It doesn't work on my calculator right now. So I don't know, man. It, it's it's not an it's not a, it's not a hard confliction. Like if I, if the decision was I don't know. Been been Battersea in the nineties, then sure, fuck it, right? It would have just been it is what it is what it is moment moment. But to have uh, and to have all this just changing of hands, rising in value when nothing's been done to it, just literally an asset rising in value because London rises in value every fucking year. It just doesn't it just doesn't make sense to me. Maybe if if it looks good, it looks good, but you know. I, I, just, I just don't know. Is, is that is the stakes worth it? Most of the time, it's not. Okay, so um, we're going to do some Qatar 2022 uh, talk right now. Um, you know, I've done it intermittently throughout the years. Um, just you know, whenever whenever there's the wave of uh, of uh, of uh, think pieces on it. Um, so yeah, this one's by uh, Barney Rone, uh, chief sports uh, writer for the Guardian. Um, and you know, I find it interesting. Um, I find I found it a pretty interesting piece. Um, so I thought it'd be worth uh, shouting out because I refuse to talk about it week on week. Um, when you know everyone's just going to watch the fucking World Cup anyway and not give a shit about. Uh, you know, just how we got there, and sports washing in general. But it's interesting the argument uh, Mr. Roney puts on this one, um, where he uh, talks about sports washing. Sitting the title, forget sports washing. Qatar 2022 is about military might and uh, and hard uh, sports power, which uh, is honestly much more stronger than what sports washing is. Obviously, um, so let's get into the argument. Uh, we need a new word for this thing. Psychologists have sometimes used the phrase semantic satiation? 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 
satiation, satiation. I, I'm, I'm tripping up on that. That's crazy. It's the TIs, man. It's, it's two TIs, and I like sometimes it's shin or T. You know what I mean? So satiation. Oh, I don't know. Uh, semantic satiation. Who knows? To describe the process, where saying the word woodpecker twenty times in a row, or sitting in a circle reciting the phrase "straight leg easy fit chinos," will eventually strip those sounds of any meaning. As though the entire concept of straight leg easy fit chinos has suddenly ceased to exist. What? So woodpecker, 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 wood woodpecker, 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 woodpecker. Fuck, you know. That's that's kinda hard to do. I tripped up twice. Straight leg, easy fit chino. Straight leg, easy fit chino. Okay, that'll be a bit. That's a bit easier. I'm not gonna do it twenty times. Uh, straight. Eventually, strip the sounds of any meaning, as though the entire concept of straight leg is suddenly exclusive. I guess. I guess. Uh, sure. Something like this has happened to the word sports washing. Agreed. This was always a hopeful coinage adopted on the hoof uh, to describe governments or other entities that use elite sport as a propaganda tool. Years of heavy use, first by Azerbaijani human rights activists in Amnesty International, then by news and by sp- and sports pages, have left it looking a little baggy. By now, sports washing has been adopted among uh, apologists as a kind of internet eye roll, with a vague sense it belongs in the same company as wokery, <laughs> or having feelings, or taking offence at an emoji. Here they come, the bleeding hearts, the liberals, the, disp- the dispossessed, and the dead. How serious can something be washing... Uh, uh, something with washing in its name really be uh, you have ha- you have to hand it to Qatar 2022 the opening game is just over a month away and still every question from what words to use to Ruben Loftus-Cheek's confusing early season squad bolt as an ambling central pivot leads you to leads you back to the same basic ground why is the World Cup happening in Qatar anyway we still don't have a clear answer the consequences and related causes have been examined in granular detail from FIFA corruption to human rights abuse to, vain gl- to the vainglorious ambition of the hyper-rich. But there is still a blank, uh, blank at the heart of this vast, onerous un- enterprise, an absence of any real notion of why. Maybe, excuse me, maybe some of the numbers will ha- maybe some numbers will help. This, la- uh, this week, the last of 200 Royal Air Force personnel were deployed to Qatar's Dukan uh, Air Base, I assume as they say, part of Project Thariat. A joint World Cup veiled security mission. Did anyone notice back in 2020 that the RAF had formed a joint Air Force squadron with Qatar? The only joint squadron with anyone since the Second World War. But then Qatar has also also has 24 shiny new British Typhoon jets and Hawk MK 167s. When I think of um, when I when I think of shit like that. I always think of the defense budget and always like, and it always leads to me looking up the defense budget and just thinking, man, what the, what those pointless use of billions could do. Like, what are we defending? Seriously, what are we defending? You know, you know what we're defending? We're defending capitalism. That's what they're doing. That's, that's literally what they're doing. Okay, let's continue. And this is not a private part. The first time since World War Two. that fucking... It blows my mind of all the shit we've done over as a as a fucking militaristic power and and the soft power we've had. This is the one we've had joint operation, joint squadrons with. Doesn't make sense. And this is not a private party. Welcome to Qatar 22. 
where the world comes together and does so <laughs> seriously talked up. Expects amazing. Expects to be a part uh, to be part of a vast geopolitical security operation. Qatar has three thousand two hundred fifty Turkish security officers. Qatar has South Korean military specialists teaching close combat skills. Qatar has NATO looking after chemical, biological, radiological, and nuclear threats. Qatari airspace is policed by Kronos radar, electronic warfare compact airborne threat uh, surveyor, uh, the transmission data link Skydome, and the famed drone hunter attack system. What the fuck is going on with this piece right now? I'm tripping the fuck out. There's so much going on. So much information being thrown right now. Qatar has 36 US F-15 QA fighter jets and 24 US Apache helicopter gunships. Qatar has 28 NH-90 helicopters from Italy and 36 Rafales and two A330MRTT aerial refueling planes from France. Qatar has the eyes of the world. Qatar has the Glastonbury spider. Qatar has David Beckham. And quite clearly in this company, uh, the World Cup is a weapon too. The Glastonbury spider is a weapon. David Beckham is a weapon. Perhaps you thought Beckham was simply a tool or an instrument, but he is also a weapon. And a massive weapon, judging by his price tag. I'm fucking... I, I feel like I've just... I feel like I've been punched in the face. It's just absurd how, how, how this is being written uh, so casually. Alright. It feels like staying the obvious, but sometimes... Uh, you're really not, bro. I'm, I'm learning a lot. Um, but sometimes the obvious has to be stated. What this World Cup is really about is security. I'm not trying to be liked or putting on a face for concerned liberals in economically challenged corners of Western Europe. Qatar doesn't need to be liked, or diversify into packaged golfing holidays. Qatar has 200 years of natural gas. There it is. <laughs> fuck. <laughs> Barty is going... Oh, fuck, man. Barty's, Barty's fucking going off right now. He's based. Absurdly rich and absurdly small, Qatar wants to be visible on the map. This is not sports washing. This is hard sports power. And in the end, we are in the simply... <coughs> we are in the we <coughs> sorry and in the end we in the si- we in the are simply bystanders okay that was just <laughs> need to edit on that line that was crazy uh we in in the end we in the are simply bystanders suppliers and accessories don't know what the fuck to do with that sentence like, i don't even know where to begin on that how to restructure that anyway <coughs> it helps to get a little perspective Qatar declared independence from Britain only in 1972, as a modern self-governing state is younger than Gary Southgate. Is he the Fuck. Oh, fucking hell. These fucking lions are catching me off. So, oh god, so much. The years either side of the World Cup bid have been dotted with talks of coups and the Gulf Cold War. That is the real reason Qatar has such a, uh, such a vast military presence. The context here is a regional map that reads like the end of the world, reinterpreted through a bloodstained Jane Austen trauma. Qatar and Iran are friends. Saudi Arabia hates Iran. The United Arab Emirates hates Iran. Qatar and Saudi are pretending, for now, not to hate each other. Everyone hates Israel, apart from the US, which likes Israel, while trying to maintain relations with everyone else who doesn't. Saudi is on off with the US, but kind of likes Russia and China. China can like anyone who seems useful. Russia laughs darkly at the notion of liking things, while seeking relations with those who can serve its historic destiny to become the new Rome. 
in the middle of this tiny rich vulnerable uh tiny rich vo- tiny rich vulnerable guitar is out there on its peninsula staging history's greatest show and taking daily calls from world leaders as war in Europe has created power and power around its vast gas wealth. Little wonder the World Cup vibe is a little odd. That even the soft R of this thing has even has seemed strangely brutal from buying Neymar for twice the record fee, blowing up the European transfer market to wave a flag in the moment of border tension, to creating the current toxic inanity uh, around French football, f- French football's puppet emperor Kylian Mbappe, sport golden child of gas deals, media buyouts, and Elysee Palace l- lunches. Western colonial powers used football l- uh, like this in the 19th century as a law, a tool, a way of marshalling the locals. Perhaps in an unlikely historical irony, there is an element of this process in reverse now. Either way, as Qatar 2022 looms closer, it seems pretty clear the sports sports washing has run its course. Count the drones, the radar systems, the jets. This is hard sports power. Jesus Christ, this this episode is fucking me up. Oh, fuck. Alright. Fuck. <laughs> Not much more to say. <laughs> Not much more to say. Once again, let's move on to the next one. Fuck me. You know why I'm feeling so fucking overwhelmed at this point right is because i i i understand that i've i've understood all these things right and that these things exist but i've just been in this episode just punching the face with so much of it the fact that all of this is happening in real time just i i don't even i can't even be anarchistic about the world you know I just feel a sense of apathy and a sense of powerlessness towards it. I can't even vote out the fucking government right now. You know what I mean? It's just, it's even that, the smallest bit of democratic power I have can't even be, uh, can't even be wielded at this point because bitches are bitches at this point, all right? It just, (laughs) it just fucking blows my mind. I know I don't have any control over what happens with Qatar or, who the fuck fucks with Israel? Like, I just... I have my own opinions on all of those things, right? But just all of these hard facts are just, like... It's just rendering my opinion just obsolete. Where it's just... I just don't even... I, it's just no point. There's just no point in me talking about it. Because why the fuck does my opinion mean anything? You know what I mean? It's just... And, you know, you can say that about this entire show. Uh, this entire... Uh, and the entire concept of podcasting sometimes, right? Why? Why does anybody... Does any does any podcast have you know genuine power? I don't know, you know, and I get this is in some in sometimes a form of entertainment. Uh, I like to class this as infotainment, um, but you know, fuck, like, I I just don't know where to begin uh, to towards this. Anyway, let's finish up. Let's finish up. Uh, uh, a surprise this point. If this, if this doesn't make uh, 70 minutes, I'll be very surprised. Um, so let's finish off with uh, an article f- uh, from Alexis Oatman uh, via OK Player. It's called The Dangers of Artists Not Controlling Their Stands. And uh, it's obviously in reference to Nicki Minaj. But um, this is just a conversation I've been wondering a lot. Uh, I've wondered for this for years. 
Um, and it is just and and it's kind of just why the the only side of well not the only side the the one side of music that um I just despise and I have no time for um except when we're having an actual critique of it on an article so shout out to Miss Oman on this one uh Nicki Minaj has been credited again because of course it starts with that following the release of another one single Super Freaky Girl. Uh, Minaj has been embroiled in one online drama to the next with her overzealous fans, better known as the Barbs, battling anyone who shares a conflicting view or opinion on social media. Well, haven't come at me yet. I've said a lot of things on pod, so um, you know, I'm waiting for that. Um, anyway, I'm waiting to get docs apparently. But the attacks uh, don't just extend to other rappers and celebrities, journalists, your average social media user, anyone who seems to speak out of turn about the artist is met with abuse uh, online that ranges from verbal threats to potential doxing. Recently, this came to a head with cultural commentator Kimberly Foster. Foster has criticized, had criticised Super Freaky Girl and Minaj's MTV Video Vanguard Award performance in late August after tweeting that Minaj is, quote, so clearly a horrible person, not quite early this week. She was met with mounds of harassments and threats, including sexual violence, robbery and kidnapping, and even received a response from the rapper herself. This comes four years after a similar situation occurred with music and cultural journalist Wana Thompson, who tweeted a critique about Minaj's music and became the target of online abuse from fans of the rapper as a result. On the surface, uh, most fandoms are harmless, but they can uh, become dangerous when fans begin to degrade and dehumanise others under the guise of defending their idols. In Minaj's case, Cadian uh, Powell, I'm assuming that's how you're saying it, uh, a sociology and black studies lecturer at Burnham City University, England. Uh, <laughs> glad it said England. I thought it was Alabama, who knew. Uh, agreed that the rapper often deploys her fans like a protective shield against her online enemies. Quote, she frequently retweets their most zealous defenses uh, of her, no matter how much vitriol these statements contain about others. This communicates to the fan base that such behavior is welcome and encouraged. Powell said. Moreover, it communicates that tweets of that nature are the way to get their attention. Uh, attention on the internet is a powerful currency, and people always want more, dot, 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 until they get burned, unquote. Social media has changed uh, how we interact with our favorite celebrities in the last 10 years. The oversaturation of constant connection between fans and artists has created hyperfans, commonly referred to as stands who are a l- part of a larger fan base, whether that be uh, Beyonce's Bayhive, Taylor Swift's Swifties, or most notably Nicki Minaj's Barbs. Stan, which the, is defined as an overzealous or obsessive fan of a particular celebrity, first came about in the early 2000s through Eminem's song with the same name. In it, Eminem treks through the relationship between him and an obsessive stalker-like fan named Stan, who idolised the rapper, even changed his appearance to look like him. After failing to gain an answer to any of his fan letters, Stan ultimately kills himself and his girlfriend. Nas also popularized the term, giving it more context on Ether. His now famous diss track responded to Jay-Z's takeover. You a fan, a phony, a fake, a pussy, a Stan, he raps. Uh, Stan describes the most aggressive form of parasocial interaction, which are one-sided relationships where one person extends emotional energy, interest, and time, and the other party, the persona, is completely unaware of the other's existence. These are the most common with celebrities, organisations like sports teams and notable public figures, with hyperfans often feeling a personal responsibility and duty to defend them, no matter how hysterical it may get at times. In 2020, a report found that online communities like Instagram and Twitter model issues of the realness of parasocial interaction, noting 
how despite what the one-sided nature of these interactions, it can have both negative and positive effects and sometimes go beyond the individual to affect a group of people. The negative impact of these interactions includes some untoward effects on genuine relationships and feelings of inferiority when comparing oneself to those one encounters through various forms of media. Gail Esteva, Esteva, S-T-E-V-R, Steve Osteffer, um, a professor of social and behavioral scientists at SUNY uh, Empire State College, or SUNY, uh, said people often engage in parasocial relations for relations for three reasons: romantic interest, hero role model attraction, and task interact a task attraction. Uh, quote interesting actually that's uh, those three uh, when people engage in these parasocial relations with celebrities they often find community amongst each other she said while that may be a good thing it can also lead to chaos as well uh, steve i'm gonna say, I'm say steve actually steve sounds bell doesn't believe celebrities interacting with their fans is bad but suggests that fans will mimic the behavior they see from the star they follow oh, thank you thank you thank you thank you thank you thank you exactly my, exactly the point i get to like, it's just that they 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 are they they cultivate it somehow. They cultivate it in some way with their persona. You know what I mean? Like they, they cultivate it. Um, if the celebrity is philanthropic, if they're kind, they reach out in a kind of in a kind way and not toxic on social media, then mostly this is the behaviour fans are going to give back, she says, she said. Licensed licensed clinical psychologist Dr. Donna Rockwell agreed. Oh, we're getting the psychologist up in there. Rockwell has spent decades researching mental health famous celebrity. Her work is, is what inspired her to form Already Famous, Embracing Inner Air Celebrity, an online wellness group that uh, helps women and girls overcome social reje- uh, self-rejection that may come through social media. Uh, Rockwell uh, believes uh, celebrities maintain a great responsibility uh, res- uh, concerning how their fans interact online, saying, quote, if we don't do that, uh, what are we opening the door to? The golden rule still exists. We have to treat people the way we want to be treated, unquote. She said that the idea of reflected glory uh, through the social media lens has opened up the floodgates for fans to engage with the celebrity experience. As a result, Rockwell said the lines have blurred between obsessive, extremely committed fan groups and a cult, noting how dangerous it is to engage with mob mentality online. Quote, fans give up so much of their own unique agency and autonomy in life by overfocusing on a celebrity's existence, Rockwell said, adding that social media is like the Wild West and has yet to be fully understood. It's a dangerous place, it's a dangerous world, and we seem to have lost the capacity to have empathy for one another. Unquote. While there aren't, that many, uh, aren't many great examples of a celebrity and fan dynamic, Rockwell said Oprah Winfrey stands out among the rest, partly due to the vulnerability she extends to audiences. Oprah has exemplified this way of being for decades, she said. A sense of compassion and caring for other people, that's what's made her famous. Rockwell, Steva, and uh, Powell uh, agree that general fandoms are not the issue here. When the fans begin to have an obsessive cult-like attitude towards those who disagree with them in the name of defending their favourite artist or entertainer, that's where the issues arise. Fan bases and stardoms, uh, standoms are, are, offer a powerful source of support. Without them, the, these people are not stars. That said, there is a limit and responsibility to this dependent relationship. Powell said that the uh, that artists need to be careful not to think uh, they can direct the agenda or behaviour of those groups and that is part of understanding their power. Quote, the caveat here is when the celebrity has the power to intervene in dangerous or overzealous behaviours, uh, they don't have to intervene directly, but they can make their displeasure unknown. Powell said, exactly, just, you know, just don't say, oh, don't f- I don't fuck with this, don't do this. Yeah, just simple shit like that. Like, if you can't control that, then, I mean, shit, 
sure you did what you could, but just call it out, man. Saying that it's again, guys, again, this comes back to fucking anti anything, right? Anti racism, anti misogyny, right? Any of this shit, right? If you if you uh, if you just watch it go, if you just watch it pass, and you don't call it out, then it's just going to continue to go happen, isn't it? If you're not actively participating in eradicating these anti anything in, in these negative uh and negative societal uh ills then you're you're contributing to it simple as that ultimately fans are going to stand in whatever way that satisfies their emotional connection to their favorite eyes that doesn't mean we cannot encourage celebrities whose fan bases can be incredibly toxic to get stricter boundaries against developing unhealthy relationships and interaction online even Beyonce had to tell her hive to settle down in the past after spewing hateful attacks online rather than weaponizing their fan base other noble figures should try and do the same. Ah, <sighs> goddamn! It's just um, it's just a lot. It's just a lot. I've I've put a lot on this on this episode. Um, just in terms of just strict reading and uh, the amount I've had to read and just uh, the amount of like information I've just had to pack in and compartmentalize. It's just been a lot. Uh, this has been a very stressful episode. <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm so sorry. This is so stressful to me. Um. I've I've never been so stressed doing an episode because it's just a lot. Because uh, as I read, I think of what I'm gonna say. You know what I mean? I, I try and keep it very loose on that front. But fuck, man, just just fuck, 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 fuck. It's crazy. There's just a lot of shit. There's just a lot of shit in life, man. I can't even lie to you. I don't know. And even and I'll give you an example, right? Of the standard shit, right? The closest I come to that is probably Little Sims, who I literally gassed up <laughs> at the start of the episode, right? And I don't consider myself a stan to Lil Sims. I I really don't. Um, I have her records. Uh, you know, that's kind of it. <laughs> I have her records, right? That's you know, I don't I don't own merch. Uh, you know, I haven't like paid out the arse for like a meet and greet or any of that kind of stuff. Like, you know, it's it's not it's not my steez. And also financially, I'm just not doing that, right? I I. I I I I I shouted this fucking go when it uh, on on IG. I put it up on. I put her getting the dub on IG uh, on my IG stories, right? And then I kind of and then I deleted it before I went to bed, right? Because it doesn't need to be there for twenty four hours, right? Um, I don't tag. I don't tag her in anything. I don't. I'm not that kind of person. Uh, you know, it, it's what it is. I'm not. I don't. I I don't see her as like a a, a goddess or anything. Um, I she's very her music is very important to me. Um, you know, I can I can I can write a, I can write an essay of how about her her music has just helped me over the past like um uh how many years has it been now since about since like 2017 2018 right it's been it's been it's been amazing just um and and it's and it's very respectable objectively just seeing where she's come from and how she's come up. Uh, through her old work, uh, and through the story she has told, and coming to now, it's just respectable. And I, I just love that. I love that for her. But does that consider me a stand? No. Like if people don't, if people, people don't listen to Little Sims enough to for me to actually, uh, for me to actually have a to get at people that that even if that was the case, right? If I even got at people for you know not liking Little Sims or for whatever reason. And she doesn't come off as anything negative in my mind. Uh, she seems relatively cool. Um, 
you know, as close as I've come to talking to her is uh, I I went to an interview, I went to a uh, I went to a Top Boy event in March, I think, or February. Um, and uh, you know, that was it. I asked her a question, asked Michael Ward a question, Saffron Hawking, uh, uh, what's her girl's name, Jasmine. Uh, Jasmine, uh, I forgot her name. Jack off top where I forget her names. Jasmine, Jasmine Jobson. That's it. Boom, boom, boom. Right. Asked all them a question. Right at the same time, and you know she looked me in the eye and I was like, yeah, yeah, yeah. I was like, I was like nodding, geeking. <laughs> you know, I'm a fan of Little Sims. I'm not a standard Little Sims. Uh, if uh, you know, I, I just, I just can't. I don't have that much energy. I don't have energy to put in a persona of myself, let alone somebody else. So, um, yeah, I just don't see how people do it when it comes to, even when it comes to sports, I have in like, you know, oh, LFC, LFC Sean and AFC Chris and shit like that. And they're just posting memes and just barking at each other on, on replies. And ugh, it's just so boring. Like if you not, not got work to do, <laughs> you know what I mean? It's just fuck. Anyway, I never understood it. I will never understand it. Stan culture is fucking weird to me. Um, and it forever will be, um, but you know it'll come a time where it's just gonna get too bad, and uh, yeah, there'll have to be some consequences on the eyes side, I believe. I think um, to to that. But anyway, that's me, ladies and gentlemen, from the Fifth End Podcast Network. I'm Charlie Taylor. This has been a stressful edition of What's Good. Into the intro music was a bit uh, too much by Vanilla. It's short break, uh, short music for the ability to use a track. You can find both their links in the full show notes. Thanks to friend five e nappy higher for the ability to use charismatic for the interlude. Uh, you can also find his link in the full show notes. And with that said, uh, hope you all have a good week. I sure f- fucking hell try and do the same. <laughs> but until the next time, take it easy, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs>